Okay, good morning. This, yeah, good. I passed out a handout, which we'll come back to later. Um, use it as scrap paper if you want. Um, that's fine. But this is the final session in the Faith and Family series on parenting. And just by way of introduction, for those that we don't know, uh, we are Mary and Victor Hansen. Uh, we have three grown married children and five, almost six grandchildren. Now, three of those grandchildren, a four-year-old girl and twin 10-month-old boys, plus their parents and a dog, are back living under our roof while they renovate a house. So this is a good class. <laughs> We're in the thick of it and enjoying most every moment. Um, we are certainly not experts. Uh, we do have some age and experience and perspective to offer. Um, they are probably many things we did well, but there are a lot of things we have regrets about as well. So we're just thankful that we have great relationships with each child and each spouse. Um, Victor and I were married here at the Advent 38 years ago. Um, we're just so grateful for this place, its vision, its mission, and its passion for proclaiming the gospel. So fortunate. Now, the topic that Cameron assigned us is to talk about the tension that parents feel between the roles of being the buddy versus being the boss. Um, but before we get into that, let me just open in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the gift and heritage of children. We thank you for the awesome privilege and responsibility you've given us as parents. But we do acknowledge we are but jars of clay, imperfect vessels, and we need your help. So speak to us this morning, and I just pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, first of all, I think it's good to just acknowledge that this tension is real, and finding the right balance is tricky and very probably different with each child. Plus, this is a larger life issue than just a parent-child. I mean, think about it. You see it in the workplace with the boss and the employee, at camp with the counselor and the camper, at church with a minister and congregation, always this tension of buddy-boss, in sports with the coach and a player, in schools with the teacher and the student. And since this issue is all-prevailing and crosses every secular and Christian line, there's really a lot written on this topic. Um, it's a very common problem or issue. Um, and then secondly, this tension and seeking the right balance never truly goes away, though it does get a lot easier and clearer with adult children. But it still tugs. I mean, they're, they're still your babies, and you just love them so much. And, for example, you know, I mentioned my son and daughter-in-law are renovating a house. And, you know, it's their first time to do this. But, you know, we've done it three or four times. Small projects, big projects. Um, so I have so much wisdom and insight, right? <laughs> and, and they're living with us, so their plans are spread out on our dining room table. So, you know, it would just, I really want to just jump in there and look over their shoulder and offer them all sorts of advice. And um, But in this situation, I'm very ha happy to say that they are asking for advice and ideas and input. They're saying, mark up our plans, tell us what to do. Um, but that's not always the case. And plus, these two 28-year-olds are raising their three children for 
several months under our roof and in our kitchen, but we let them be the parents. And thankfully, they're great parents, but it's always attention, always always finding that, that balance. Sometimes I think about my relationship with our adult children like birds and a bird feeder. Now picture birds flying around in a yard and they're landing on this branch and in that tree and they're feeding on these berries and they're just being busy. And then picture a bird feeder. Now a bird feeder doesn't help by chasing the birds around the yard, offering what they have. No, the bird feeder has one job, to be there, to be available, and to always be just full of food. The birds will come. And I think of that sometimes as with my adult children. I just sometimes, I, you know, sometimes I want to chase them around the yard and I'm here, what can I do? You know, but I just need to be that bird feeder and they just know that I'm there. Um, but another approach might be like a friend when we were talking to him about this topic who said when their adult age child comes, she said, I don't ask about their church attendance, quiet time, exercise. I just say, Honey, would you like a glass of wine? <laughs> That's not a bad idea either. Okay, back to the topic. But what's the topic really asking? Underneath the label being the buddy, what we're really asking, I think, is do you want to be cool? The cool mom, the cool dad. Do you have a need to be liked by your child, by, your, by the friends of your children? Are you trying too hard to be friends? Does your desire for your children to be happy affect your decision making? And conversely, being the boss, what I think we're really asking is, do you think you can control your kids? Do you naturally resort to the rules and regulations to impact your child's behavior? Are you frequently getting angry and frustrated with a particular child? Now, chances are for each of us, it just depends on the day because we, we do it all. But I'm sure you can tell where I'm going with this, that being the buddy versus being the boss, neither are right, both are right. It's a moving target as your children age and mature. I mean, the parent should be that one person a child feels he can talk to about anything while at the same time being the person who sets the rules and the boundaries and the expectations for behaviors. That's not an easy balance. Parents really do need God's wisdom on how to do their job effectively. Now I'm going to get back to the topic of tapping into God's wisdom after Victor talks a bit. So I'm going to pass this mic over to him. She's got the wisdom. I got the talk. I do feel a bit hypocritical being up here because it gives the impression that uh, somehow the comments and observations that I might share would indicate that we did all this. (laughs) Um, So um, the lips are moving, but uh, I'm going to put on my journalist hat. These are just a keen sense of observation. Um, You know, the tension that Mary talked about. the one thing we've experienced is it does change over time. I mean, I think when your kids are very young, you know, you've got that role of being the cop. I mean, you're spending so much time on the basics, protecting them from danger, make sure they're well fed, they're healthy, um, doing those kind of core things. And then as they get older, 
um, you know, it's more of a coaching relationship. And though I know when uh, Cameron talked, he did not like that word coach because he felt like it was pushing your kids. I'm using that term in the sense of you're trying to help your child sacrifice, learn, delay gratification, some work ethic to do things right now they don't want to do so that they can do things later that they actually do want to do, but they had to make certain sacrifices early on, and you're there to help them with that. And then as Mary talked about, you become in many ways more of a counselor. Um, you know, and I think you're, you know, I'm 60 years old, and uh, but you all have got even more challenges, those of you that have young children, than we had just because, you know, if you live in one of the affluent neighborhoods, all those activities that are out there that your children can be in and that your peer group wants you to join in, whether it's uh, traveling t-ball teams, you know, or um, ballet, dance. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And then I think the whole iPhone, Internet, that kind of culture that's out there, both of those, the um, activities and the access, are going to cause you to have to be probably even more out of step with your peers. If you're doing your job right, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for your kids not to be happy with you. Um, uh, in talking about this tension, I think John Roseman, and one of uh, he's a, a parenting uh, guru that uh, I think he might still be writing, but he used to write a column in the Wall in the Charlotte Observer, and he talks about you know he says um, no matter how hard you try, no matter what disciplinary technique you use, you cannot control your child. If you try to control your child, you'll only become frustrated and stressed. And you'll create more problems than you saw. He said the only thing that you can effectively control is your relationship with your child. In this regard, he said, there are three kinds of parents. And he said, first of all, there's the parent who does, in fact, try to control their child. And those parents, he terms, you know, authoritarian parents. Um, they are dictatorial and rigidly restrictive because they're attempting to do the impossible. And because they do not accept children for who they are, the authoritarian parents typically get frustrated, angry, um, and they almost always over-discipline using a hammer when they could have used a fly swatter. You know, it takes other forms, too. We traveled a lot for business, and uh, we, we worked hard to get good sitters as our kids were growing up. And I remember one time we came back and we used a new, uh, new sitters. It was a couple, husband and wife. Um, and we got back and our kids, you could just tell they weren't really happy with the experience. And the more we talked to them, the more you could tell that the sitters were very rigid. And it wasn't in any way that they disciplined in a way that we weren't happy with. But the bottom line, there was no fun in the house. Our kids just, there was just no fun. And I think often that can be one of the problems of an overly rigid approach. Um, I also think a really bad combination are compliant children and very uh, rigid parents. I mean, a lot of times you think the compliant child is the easy one to raise, but I think, in fact, uh, that's a whole other topic. I think the compliant child can actually be the much more difficult child to raise and can have, you know, very significant long-term issues um, if not dealt with in the right way. Um, Roseman talks about number two, you know, the other kind of parents, the one who failed to control their relationships with their children, and these are called the permissive ones. They try to be friends with their children. Let their children make decisions they're incapable of making. Try to keep their children happy, compromise, and capitulate in the face of conflict, and are generally at their children's beck and call. 
Another author writes, I've noticed that a lot of parents are trying to be their kids' friends these days. Many give in to their kids' demands, perhaps because they want to be the cool parents. Sometimes it's because the parents are simply exhausted from working so hard, managing the household and trying to raise their kids as best they can. Being a friend is much easier and more comfortable than being a parent. After all, at least at first, but understand that if it continues, it creates severe problems down the road because it becomes very confusing for them. It creates poor boundaries and makes it hard for your child to relate appropriately to other adults. Um, you know, the cool parent doesn't want to disappoint their child or deal with conflict, has a hard time saying no or setting limits. I think another problem there is um, if a parent is focused on being the friend, it can lend to tend to oversharing. And the parent sees the child as their confidant, especially as the child gets older and nears adolescence. And, and the parent treats them more like a peer than a child. The parent starts sharing their own problems and difficulties with the child. Your problems become their problems. And the child has no choice in this because you are the one with the authority. Um, the parent is burdening the child with adult issues. Your child needs to be the one. You need to be your child's sounding board, not the other way around. Um, I think one also, you can tend to way overshare judgmental comments like other parents, other kids, you know, things that you might talk quietly to your spouse about, but you find yourself doing that with your child. Um, you know, and parents who seek to be friends with their children, I think, can overshare one of the one writer wrote it so effectively, don't tell me your child's sins. Um, you know, we've always felt that, you know, that our children, when they make mistakes, now we might go to somebody, a confidant, a good friend, that we need help and advice to resolve a situation, especially as they get to be more like teenagers. But we always felt very protective that when our children really stumble, really went through a tough, a tough period, that we're kind of protectors of that. Yeah you know, assuming they get out of it. doesn't mean we don't seek help and go to wise counsel. We just don't traffic and, you know, exposing our children's weaknesses. I'm, I'm 60 years old. My dad still, when he gets with people, he loves to tell a story of me in high school when, uh, you know, I almost got kicked out of school. I won't go into the details, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, um, Ask his dad. He'll tell you. <laughs> you know, of course, then you got the parents who, overshare on Facebook and on Snapchat or whatever it is that when a sense they've overtaken their child's own story, they now somehow take their child's story and it becomes their story. And this can be especially embarrassing for um, teenagers. Um, so we talked about the permissive and the authoritarian parent. Um, the one that Roseman says is the balance, which, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe a few times I've had the balance. But, you know, these parents are what he calls authoritarian authoritative. They make the rules and enforce them dispassionately. They supervise well, but they are not overly involved with their kids. Not to mean not doing things with them, but they describe their own boundaries to their children, thus helping their children learn to stand on their own two feet. You know, they don't care what their kids think of them at any given moment. They understand that one cannot both lead and fraternize and it's either one or the other. The, this parent um, rules. He is not in the sway of emotion, but neither is he unemotional. 
Quite the contrary, because he understands and accepts children for what they are, as opposed to having either unrealistic expectations or sentimental perspective. Um, He is capable of showing his children more love and compassion than either of those other two hyper-emotional counterparts. Um, Most unfortunately, Roseman says, the majority of today's parents fall into one of the uh, first two categories. In both cases, we're talking about parents who are ruled by emotions. The authoritarian parent, remember, is ruled by frustration and anger. The permissive parent, anxiety and guilt. So these are, I think, two danger signs of parenting. Um, If you're gripped with anxiety and guilt in raising your kids out of frustration, or if there's a lot of anger and frustration, um, it's almost like these are God's air raid sirens for you. If, If you can't break out of this, whether it's with your spouse or in relationship to your kids, um, you know, I think you need to take action. I mean, that it's, it's a real gift. I, for me, the anger thing is a, if I'm angry and frustrated, if the bend is out of me and I can't bend, I just break. That to me says the next things I'm going to do are not going to be healthy. Um, so I would just encourage, um, you know, for the sake of the kids and your spouse, um, view that as prophetic words of actions. Um, Johnny Cash has that great song. It's a tough song, but it's called, um, you know, God is going to cut you down. If you've never heard it, go listen to it. But he talks in there. He says, you know, you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long, long time, meaning you can stay in these states that are not where you want to be. And it can go on and on and on where you're just getting by. And, uh, you know, the line in there is, you can run on for a long time, but God's going to cut you down. And I only mean that in the sense of you can find yourself in a crisis, either a crisis with your spouse, a crisis with your child, um, and you certainly won't be able to be an effective parent. Um, the, um, you know, the great news about anxiety and anger is that neither is really about the people or places or things that you're angry or frustrated with. You know, you think it's directed toward your child, directed toward your spouse. But the discomfort you're feeling <clears throat> is really about you, and it's about you and God. If you were in a better position, you could be faced with the exact same circumstances <clears throat> and find a way through it. You can work on, you know, <clears throat> you can work with you and God to change the way you feel towards these other people, these other things, whether it's the <clears throat> T-ball coach or, you know, we had, a, we had a coach for one of our kids one time that decided the first day he didn't like the team that he was dealt. It was basketball. <clears throat> so he just didn't do practice. I'm not an athlete, but thankfully I'm married to an athlete. So Mary took the kids and did practice. But it's just that notion that um, you can get so frustrated, but the way you feel toward about that is really not about the other person or thing. It's about you and God. And if you want a great sermon on that, go to the May 8th sermon that Tim Keller did on love and forgiveness. And I'm sure it's easily available. And if y'all don't have a way to get it, you know, make contact with me and I can send you my Dropbox links because I send that one out a lot. Love and forgiveness. Um, you know, we're not perfect parents. We don't have perfect kids. Um, but one of the things we try to be is, a, you know, as one person said, a family of professional forgivers. Um, my dad really modeled that for me. And my dad, I could make him fly off the handle. I mean, really fly off the handle. Now, he never hit me, but um, 
But you know, I always knew, even with tears streaming down my face, that before the day was out, my dad would be back in my room apologizing. And that has been a huge influence in my life. And we've tried to, you know, do that with each other and with our kids. We don't always get it right. Um, <clears throat> one last comment. If I could sing, I would sing you a, a great, well, actually, it started out as a gospel song, but I think uh, Nickel Creek turned it slightly, the, the lyrics. But have you ever heard, Don't You Don't Have to Move the Mountain? Anybody ever heard that? I won't sing it, but you don't have to move that mountain. Just help me, Lord, to climb. You don't have to move that stumbling block. Just show me the way around it. We must climb a great high mountain to reach God's gracious kingdom. But in his words, you'll find the strength if you will believe them. Because you don't have to move that mountain. Just help me, Lord, to climb. That was a real... When I first heard that song, it was a real breakthrough to me because we get so occupied with we want to change something. You know, change your parents, change the teacher, change the coach, change the school, all those things. When, you know, this is a gospel of where you are. You know, the Israelis, I mean, the Israelites didn't have a choice when they were enslaved. But you could still be in God's will in that situation. We, the mountain, the mountains do move sometimes. God does move mountains. And he does remove stumbling blocks, but you don't have to wait for that to happen. That to me is you can pray, Lord, help me climb the mountain. Help me with the stumbling block. So with that, I'm going to turn it back to you. Thank you. I had no idea what he was going to say. <laughs> so that was nice. Thank you. Back on. Okay. Now. As I say, we're giving you a handout, and it's just a sampling of verses on parenting because there's a lot written in Scripture about raising children. But I am not going to read over those. You just take them home if you want. They're probably very familiar to you. Um, but the reason I printed them out was just so that you could see that um, they all speak of the authority given to parents to be the person here. To be the person who models Christ-likeness, who teaches them, trains them, and yes, disciplines, corrects, and enforces. So the source of parental authority is in God himself. And I just wanted that to be just an overarching um, thought there. Um, now this uh, series on parenting, and it's been going on since um, Rally Day, actually. Um, it's been rich and good, and Victor and I have had the chance to go online and listen to some of the um, earlier classes. And we're not here to repeat or really even to teach anything new. Um, we're just here to encourage you who are in the trenches and to validate you that good parenting is hard. It's exhausting. It requires a heart of a servant. Um, it requires really so much sacrifice of your own schedule and your own wishes and your own desires. Um, you're always making hard choices. You're constantly giving and you're often loving the unlovely. Um, so what's going to fuel that love? How will you fill and refill your t own tank? What's the secret? What are, what are our parting words of wisdom? Um, how will you raise up these children 
and launch them into the world with what Cameron Cole calls a sustainable faith that will guide and govern their lives and the choices that they make and undergird them when the bumps and hard times and failures inevitably come. Well, it's not a formula and it's not a cliche, but you've heard it all before. The best gift that you can give to your children is a good marriage. But if that's not an option and you're a single parent, and really even better wisdom is the best way to help your children grow spiritually is to work on your own spiritual growth. And I know that's echoing some other things that have been said in this series, but it is so true. And I remember the exact time when I started to do this. And it wasn't because I had this high calling and thought I want to grow spiritually and be a better parent. No, my back was against the wall and I was in so much pain and God had my attention. I was 29 years old. I had three small children. I'd been a believer most all my life. I'd grown up in young life. I was actually teaching a women's Bible study here at the Advent. I was in a couple small group. I was in the junior league and on a tennis team and my husband's career was moving along. We traveled, we entertained. I was living the dream on the outside. On the inside, I was miserable. Internally, I did not have the joy of the Lord. I wasn't experiencing the freeing power of the gospel. And those rivers of living water that we read about in John, they were not flowing from my innermost being. I think I was trapped in some anger and condemnation and some bad patterns and unhealthy behaviors, frankly. Um, I was I was seeking help and seeking solutions, um, but I needed rescuing. And the lifeline came in the form of a person who offered to disciple me, meet with me once a week, and teach for, teach me afresh from the Word of God, and like what it meant to abide in Christ. These were things I knew and heard, but they just weren't bearing fruit in my life at all. So like what it meant to abide in Christ, how to go through the day in the love and power of the Holy Spirit versus in the flesh. I was in my flesh. Um, how to pray effectively. Those were some of the just things we um, talked about early on. And I met for several years with this person. It was not an overnight transformation. But one of the things that stood out to me most and was transformative was understanding at a deeper level that the best, most surefire way to know the will of God was to know the Word of God. Yes, God's will is revealed to us in um, many different ways, but it's most certainly and clearly revealed in His written Word. So I began to let the Word of God, Holy Scripture, shape my prayer life. Um, So you say, well, what does that look like as I'm trying to be a better parent or in my marriage, um, in my decisions and choices, or if I'm needing to forgive and just can't seem to do it, or if I just need to get out of self? Um, Because you might say, you know, I won't read about these decisions, you know, how to make decisions in Jeremiah or James and whether to move schools or let that teenager go on a trip or be firm about the cell phone or have that hard conversation. You know, I just can't open up the Bible and say, ah, oh, you know. But I think what you do know, there's a lot we do know from the Bible about the will of God. 
Um, just very briefly, it just says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God in James. And then, and your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left, out of Isaiah. And then I, God, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which to go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Listen to how personal that is. We have God, the creator, God of the universe. And he says he will instruct you and teach you in the way in which to go and counsel you with his eye upon you. That is just very personal, very intimate. And you just got to decide, do I believe that? Do I really believe that? So, you know, every day I wake up and I need to get out of self. I'm back in it. You know, I just... uh but there's a there's there's a there's so much scripture about that, and one of them is in First Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen, and it just says, "And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf." And so I go, "Oh, it's God's will that I live for Him and not myself." It says so in His Word. Okay, well then, okay, how do I do that? Um, first of all, I acknowledge it that it's in His Word, and then. There's this amazing passage that I go back to all the time in 1 John 5:14 and 15. And it says, and this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request we've asked of him. Now, that's a mouthful. But basically, it says, if we go to him with his will and ask him, he hears us and he does it. And God's true to his word. He's faithful. He cannot not do what he says he's going to do in his word. So I stand on that truth. And so I can put those two together and I can say, God, would you give me a heart that lives for you and not myself today? I can't do this on my own, but I'm asking you based on your will to do that in and through me. And I thank him. So there, you know, I mean, I've just, I just walked through that and try to get out of self and out of flesh and into spirit. And I've got a thousand examples. I'm just going to give a few more. Um, oh, dear. We have 10 more minutes, <laughs> but I'm not going to give a thousand. Um, <laughs> the same thing is sort of about forgiveness. Um, what if I'm angry with a child, a spouse, a, an institution, a, a child's friend, whatever, a parent? Um, I know it's always God's will that I forgive. Uh-oh. Even if I'm right, Yes. It's always God's will that I forgive. That's scriptural. Well, I try to excuse it, rationalize it, suppress it, just push it down, give it some time, hope it'll go away. There are a lot of ways that we can deal with our with our anger, or um, but that it can keep popping up. And I really didn't think I was an angry person, but I think God said, well, I'm just going to show you. So <laughs> just, you know moment after every day after day, I was like, wow, I am popping off all the time. I mean, this one was 29, not 59, right? Um, but when I first started to learn this principle and um, put it into practice and so, um, but so there's a, there's a verse in scripture, um, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, and it says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So let me just back up and unpack that just for a few minutes, just to 
um, show you about praying God's will and knowing his will and then having it shape your prayers. So the first part of it says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, does it say put it away? No, it says let it be put away. To me, that's saying I can ask God. It's his will that I do this. Would you help me to put away all that anger that is bubbling up in me, all that bitterness that has taken root in my life. Would you, I ask you to do that for me, in me, and I know if I ask anything according to your will, you hear me and I have it. So I start there and I just ask God to do that for me because I frankly spend a lot of time trying to do that. I know it's the right thing to do. I should forgive. I'm going to do it. I, you know, blah, blah. But um, when I stop and just say, let God do that for me. So I, first, that's the first thing. That's sort of getting rid of the negative, right? And then the second part of that verse says, be kind and tenderhearted. So we look at, I'm looking at that as putting on a positive, removing a negative and putting on a positive, just so I can get my heart in neutral. So be kind and tenderhearted. Well, that's going a little too far now. Maybe I can get rid of this anger, but do I really have to be kind and tenderhearted? But if I really want to do the will of God and to grow in my faith, you know, I say, God, I don't even really want to do this, but I'm asking, would you give me a kind and tender heart towards, you know, whoever, whomever. Um, and, you know, it's amazing. I'll just sit there and God will just put on my spirit something I can do. Walk back in that room. Take a hand. Say this. It just, God just walks me around and gives me another perspective. Um, and helps me understand maybe why this problem came up in the first place. But I'm, I'm, I'm not just looking at it through my own lens. So I asked for um, to be that I could be kind and tenderhearted towards this person, this child, this spouse, whatever. And then thirdly, it says to forgive. And it's really only then that you can forgive. You've taken away this negative emotion and you put on a positive and you're in neutral. And then God says, forgive one another. So that's when I can actually extend forgiveness. And I don't really know how it works. I just know it does. <laughs> and so um, I just say, God, help me to forgive. I want to forgive. And um, and as I say, it's it's not like a magic button or anything like that, but but it's, it's what um, can and does occur when we just rely on the Word of God, the Spirit of God, to use the Word of God to shape how we pray and shape how we think. Um, Time for one more. Can I, can I say yeah, please. Thing? I should have invited you in. Let me borrow this for a <clears throat> now that I know what Mary was saying, <clears throat> I have to tell you that moment that she was talking about, that she was up against the wall, it was me. I mean, it was me. And um, there are things I said and things that <clears throat> I said to my wife, to my kids, <clears throat> that I wish I could change. Um, but what Mary is an example of is she couldn't do anything about me, but she knew she had to do something. And that's what she did. And, you know, I could see it so clearly. I mean, I knew I was in a bad place, but I saw her, you know, she was 18 when we got married and I was 22. And I saw her really for the first time engage God in a way that she knew she couldn't depend on me anymore. And, um, for, you know, she'd always depended on me, but in this area, 
you know, that was not true. And, um, she, she became more loving. You know, scripture talks about how you heap hot coals on your enemy by loving them. And that's what happened. And, um, you know, we've married 38 years. It's the best it's ever been. I think every year of raising our kids was the best it's ever been. But I just couldn't have her say that without me saying, you know, we've not lived. I mean, I've not lived a perfect life. I hadn't had a perfect marriage. And um, I'm just grateful to be here. But what Mary's talking about was a very pivotal moment, certainly in our Mm -hmm. marriage. And um, anyway. Okay, well, this is the end of the series. On that, on that note. Um, uh, I hesitate to ask, uh, open it up for questions, but um, we have uh, five minutes before the bell tolls. So does anybody have any questions or comments or um, just something to add to that or something from your own experience? <laughs> Oh, yep. I appreciate what you said about how God will show you the things you need to work on because I think that's what children can do. And I was shocked by it, really, when it all, once I had kids and we had twins right off the bat, and as they got older, I thought, I, you know, because I thought I was a pretty good kid for my parents. I felt like I was in moving all along. But then once you have your own children, it really does put the finger on some things. So, yeah, thank you. You know, if y'all are looking for secular encouragement, I tell you, teachers deal with this all the time, all day long. You just type in how to get control of your classroom. And it really, you know, you're right there. I mean, and what's encouraging is so many of these people that respond to that say, you can start tomorrow. You can make a difference tomorrow in your classroom and um, you can change things. And it's a real encouragement. I mean, it does not have to be the way it's always been. Um, it's true. Well, thank y'all. Oh, yeah, wait a minute. Net. Thank you for your honesty and your reflections and, and encouragement. It really, really hits and pours. And uh, I just appreciate y'all teaching today and leading us. Well, we're glad to still be relevant enough to have something to say. <laughs> Uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.